This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, it's Creature Comforts to show all about your animals and the animals around you. Java Chapman here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Now, today on the show, we welcome back Dr. Jennifer Colson. She's an ornithologist, master falconer, and co-author of the book Harris Hawk Revolution. Now, the art and sport of falconry has been practiced around the world for thousands of years and was first introduced to the U.S. in 1622. Now, today, Dr. Colson will talk about modern day falconry and how she interacts with these magnificent birds of prey. Also, Dr. Major is here for your pet questions, and Libby is ready to help you with your latest brush with nature. You can join our conversation this morning by calling one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Also want to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it also repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So, good morning, Libby. How are you doing this morning? And Dr. Major, how are you doing this morning? How are things at the clinic? Everything's fine. It's, uh, it's good. Well, as always, Libby, we um, start off with uh, some of your recent nature observations. What are you seeing? Okay, we're talking. We're still talking about fireflies, the synchronous fireflies. How was the event? Okay, well, uh, the event was really good at the Mississippi Craft Center. Correct at the Craft Center, there were um, lots of people and even more fireflies, and there were several species. the The synchronous ones were kind of what we were all waiting for because. They're out such a short time, and uh, it's still rare for us to see them. So um, all the the Craftsman Skill did a great job of hosting it, and everything went real well. And I think hundreds of people went through. Well, that sounds awesome. Fireflies. They're starting to decrease in numbers now around here a little bit, but as you know, imperceptibly so maybe. But the temperature gets warmer as you go up the state through time, I guess. You'd, so it's almost like a wave. So they're starting to emerge further north now. And Robin Whitfield has uh, just sent a note to me the other day, and she's found a good population there at the close to Grenada. Okay. Chachuma oh, Swamp, I think is what they call it, and it's at the Leetart Nature Preserve. So you could go up there if you live in that area, find a place to see them. And uh, Nicole Hodges from the museum sent a note, and uh, she and Becky found them at um, Noxaby Wildlife Refuge last weekend. Remember we had announced their um, bio blitz that they were having? Uh-huh. So they found synchronous fireflies that night when they were going on a, a bat a walk or a bat <laughs> hunt. So uh, they've got them there. And then I heard Choctaw Lake in the Tishomingo and um, Tom Bigby National Forest also has a population, and we talked to some private landowners around Oxford, so they're coming out. They are just starting to blink. So you can, as they emerge in different parts of the state, if um, our listeners want to find a place, uh, that gives them some ideas. But a, a nice patch of hardwood forest, 
after nine o'clock at night uh, is a good place to look. Place that's not well lit, so it has to be dark. Yeah, that's what I was about to mention. That you, how often I guess would you maybe see them around your home, or maybe not because it's too it's too well lit. You kind of have to be deep in the yeah. in the darkness. Yeah, if you've got a little patch of woods though close to your neighborhood that is um, not well lit. It's worth walking down there. You can use your flashlight on the way. Cut your flashlight off. Get in a dark spot there and stand still for a few minutes and look around. And if it's after 9 o'clock and they're there, and this is the time that they've emerged, they'll be blinking about, oh, two or three feet off the ground. And it's a fast blink. And you'll notice that if, even even if they're not very well synchronized yet, they're all blinking flat, fast. So it's a little faster than one a second. If you do your one Mississippi, two Mississippi, you can <laughs> you can tell how fast they're blinking. And uh, that's the way to find them. And then if you don't see those, there are lots of other fireflies around, particularly up in the tops of trees. So you can see another species that um, – and, you know, a lot of fireflies emerge right at dawn, at dawn or at dusk. So um, you can see them when it's not so late. If your kids want to see fireflies early, you just need to find a place with those. Um, they're, they're the commonest firefly, and they'll be around. All right. Well, we have an early um, uh, caller. Want to go ahead and get to Mike in Corinth, and he uh, has a question about hummingbirds. Okay. Um, good morning, Mike. Good morning. How you doing today? All right. What's uh, your question? My question is, normally by this time, we've seen lots of hummingbirds. We have feeders all over the place. We've seen maybe four so far. Oh, I'm I'm sorry you're not getting them, and that's a hard thing. You know, they don't always migrate on the same path. So if you've been seeing them migrate through coming, you know, this time of year, they've come up from South and Central America and they spread out all over North America. And uh, many of them channel right through Mississippi on their way north. And, of course, we all along the way, some will drop out and stay and nest. So you're probably, if you had big numbers, you probably had a lot of migrants coming through. And then my guess is a few stayed usually, Mike, through the summer. Um. Yeah, normally we we have lots of hummingbirds by now, and like uh-huh. I say, uh, we've got lots of feeders, and maybe we've seen four. Uh-huh. I did see I did see one this morning. We uh, good uh, had the uh, I think the last of the rain. We've had several days of rain. Uh-huh. I live in northeast Mississippi. They may have somehow left you by when they migrated through this year, but I would say keep your feeder up for another month or so and keep watching. But um, has there been any big habitat change, something that might have discouraged them from stopping at your place? That's the kind of thing to look at. Of course, there's, it's usually something a large scale that you can't do anything about, but um, I hope that if you don't, get them this spring that do you usually get them in the fall too when they come back then that way they're heading south leaving uh, before cold re- weather yeah yeah i can't remember we uh seem like we do have some in the mm-hmm. fall usually yeah but, i've uh, 
I've had several people tell me that that's when they have the big migration through their places in the fall. So maybe if you don't get them this spring, put your feeders back out starting in um, August, September, and you might get that fall migration. But I'm sorry they missed you spring. Yeah, sorry about that, Mike. Um, Libby, is it, uh, I guess, now hummingbird season? Um, but we of, we often have yeah, hummingbirds. for the yeah. last couple of months, they've been coming through Mississippi. And, yeah, I was lucky enough to have, have good ones this year, and I've still got several. So I'm hoping that I have more than one pair nesting. But I have had years where I just really didn't see any either, Mike. So that's um, – I guess the migration path doesn't have to be very far off, and it may be that they found a a, a good source of nectar – somewhere close to you so they never made it over to your feeders well um just i guess keep looking out mike and uh we'll see you and, and, and call us back if you if you, if you get uh, a sighting uh or something we do have a few emails to get to before we bring our guest dr jennifer colson on uh she's going to be talking about falconry and i can honestly say i'm very very curious about this uh ancient us uh, art and sports um but dr major we had a pet question come through um and i think it's a fairly common common uh problem pet owners deal with especially with uh with dogs is uh, specifically puppies it says um how do you suggest converting a six month old shih tzu from paper training to using the bathroom outside she is unfortunately home alone during the day in a gated area uh, with the puppy pad in the area until recently she would use the puppy pad um move it from its original location tear it up tear up the puppy pad which you know leaves a a nice little pool in the in the original location uh, we're feeding her in the a.m and p.m and leaving a bowl of water for her during the day um, i take her out early in the a.m when i go out to pick up the newspaper and when we get home in the evenings as a puppy she seems to be more interesting in playing or watching what is going on around her outside than actually using the bathroom also should we still be feeding our six-month-old puppy twice a day or converting her to once a day those are all good questions uh you know certainly this what what she's described is pretty much uh typical of uh small dogs and young dogs just tearing up the uh pee pad the pad that goes to the bathroom on it's not unusual um I wonder if this puppy has run of the house. Uh, this is not good. If it does, it needs to be confined in a in a playpen or some small puppy pen. Well, it does say when she's home alone uh, during the day, she's in a gated area. Okay. Okay. But uh, as far as going out, you've got to get a routine established. Uh, most dogs will uh, like to urinate when they wake up. When you get up and take them outside, they'll usually do that. Feed them, and uh, within five to ten minutes, the puppy probably will defecate. This is not always true, but it is frustrating for the puppy to go outside and want to play with leaves and whatever is moving around outside and forgets about going to the bathroom. It may help if the puppy is leash trained to walk it on a leash as you go outside for it to go to the bathroom. These are all things that uh, have to be worked on. And if you're not there during the daytime, it does make it more of a challenge. I would suggest that this uh, gated area that they have, they can put it close to the door 
uh, where you're going out and be consistent each time. Um, as far as feeding, I think probably it's still better with a small dog like this to feed twice a day. You don't have to feed this, this large amount each time, but just kind of judge by how the puppy's eating. Uh, and the once a day is okay, but this is a small dog, and I think probably twice a day is best. All right. Well, we have one more um, email to get to, um, and it's actually a, a great picture that we encourage our listeners to send in um, to animals at mpbonline.org. If you see something interesting um, in your yard or while you're out on a walk, uh, send that in. And especially if you have a question, we may be able to help you, um, just like uh, David, who sent in an email. It says, hello, I just noticed this snake in a tree in front of my house. It's about three to feet above the ground of my planter i have not seen a snake in a tree before i heard birds and was wondering why they were excited i know it is not a rattlesnake since the tail uh which is not seen in the photos is smooth and black uh is it a cotton mouth if so what should i do about it uh thank you in advance for your help and libby i sent you this picture and it was pretty defining <laughs> oh yeah it was a great picture of a gray rat snake which is um not venomous and uh, very harmless to you but deadly to mice and rats so it's a good snake and, to have around and the bird and the bird nest as well, well now that's uh, true yeah they we're hoping they find mice aren't we troy instead of the bird eggs right. yeah they will uh, yeah right as far as this particular snake going up in a tree would be fairly common for it to try to raid a bird's nest that's not unusual plus i believe they they like frogs as well so if there's a frog in the area in the tree they might go after it yeah but you know uh, what else they'll go after in the tree that i, I guess this is no, shows my strike my prejudice <laughs> squirrels and i i have a problem with too many squirrels sometimes right up there close to the eve of the house they make me nervous because they're going to try to get in my attic and um but, Gray rat snakes do go after after squirrels, too. And, and Libya, I have seen a uh, rat snake just go up a brick wall. They, I, they are able to do that. Yeah. I, I was just telling. Yes, I have seen that, too. It's amazing. And, oh, Troy, I don't know if you got this picture, but if you didn't, we'll send it to you. Uh, you know how a gray rat snake will get those real tight little curves when it's climbing right. sometimes? It, right. it showed that in... I really, I don't notice anything except gray rat snakes and corn snakes getting those real tight curves in their body. It's like, gosh, think how flexible their spine is. They're flexing their muscles. Yes, Yes, made my back feel stiff to see that. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's a really defining picture. Yeah, I'll send that to you, Dr. Major, because it does have those ridges in there, and it it is perfect for climbing. Absolutely. All right, well, let's go ahead and take our first break for the hour. Um, if you want to join our conversation, one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or you can do like Dave and send in an email to animals at mpbonline.org. But when we come back, we will be talking about falconry, the sport, the art of it with Dr. Jennifer Colson. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. 
You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is Creature Comforts here on MPB Think Radio, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. I'm Java Chapman here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Uh, if you want to join today's conversation, it's one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or you can always send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. But now we want to welcome our guest, Dr. Jennifer Colson, uh, back to the show. We had her on um, uh I guess maybe about a year ago, talking about swallowtail kites. But today we're going to talk about falconry. She's a master falconer, ornithologist, and co-author of the Harris's Hawk Revolution Falconry book. Good morning, Dr. Colson. How are you doing? Great. Thank you very much for this opportunity to talk about my favorite subject, falconry. Well, I appreciate you for being on because I am uh, generally curious about this uh, <laughs> this art and sport. I've, you know, I guess only seen it in the movies and on television, but it does look so cool. So um, what got you into falconry? And uh, for those who may not be aware, can you tell us what it is? Sure. Well, falconry is the art or sport of using a trained hawk or falcon to hunt wild game. It's ancient and it dates back to at least 6,000 to 8,000 years ago on the steppes of Mongolia. But from archeological evidence, we think falconry is probably even older and that it may have begun in Iran 8,000 to 10,000 years ago. Uh, Before the invention of the gun, it was really an important means of providing meat for the table. Yeah, that's kind of, that's, uh, as they say, taking it back in the day, today is Throwback Thursday, so that's a real throwback. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, I got started uh, when I was doing wildlife rehabilitation at the Audubon Zoo in New Orleans, and I was taking care of injured hawks and falcons and owls, and I needed to, to see if some of them were strong enough and if they could fly well enough to be returned to the wild. So I started using falconry, learning and using falconry techniques to rehabilitate and reintroduce um, injured birds to the wild. And and that's when I got hooked. Well, I guess the the number one question is, how do you get the bird to come back? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's really kind of a cheap parlor trick in a way. Uh, uh, What you do is uh, you start off by putting jesses on the legs of the bird. The jesses are little short leather straps that are like short leashes, and that allows the falconer to control the hawk so that you can train it without it flying away. And you start off by walking with it and a process called manning so that it gets really accustomed to you and and its new surroundings. And then you get it hungry. You're putting it on a diet where you control the amount it eats so that it really wants food. And so it'll overcome its fears of you to lean down and take a little bite from your gauntlet, the glove. Then what you do is get it to jump the length of the leash of the perch that it's on. Maybe just step up onto the glove and then jump a little ways. And once it's doing that, you've pretty much got it. Now you put it on a long line, a tether essentially, called a creance. Falconry is full of some crazy old terms that date back 
hundreds of years and and you fly the bird you keep increasing the distance that you're asking it to come for food and eventually you know you find an open field and you've got the bird coming 100 feet or so reliably and that might take a couple of weeks then you're ready for the really scary part which is to take the bird off the crayons and turn it loose and and uh, hopefully it's going to come back for your little tiny piece of raw meat that's on the glove, which we call a tidbit. But once it's uh, once it's flying on the creons reliably, usually then you fly it free. You're giving it increasing levels of freedom, and then maybe you're hunting with it within I'd say two to three days. Yeah, this does, it does have a, a kind of an old soundy to it, the creance, the gauntlet. I can just picture uh, regals and nobles and dukes and uh, aristocrats all out with their with their falcons and their hawks. Um, I guess who um, participates in falconry? I know this this is not your everyday uh, type of activity. Yeah, nowadays it's really it can be somebody who's a count or a duchess, but it's, <laughs> it's oftentimes just regular old people like me and my husband. Uh, we uh, hunt together. We're, we're lucky in that we're flying uh, a species called the Harris's hawk, and they can be hunted together in groups because they're social. In the wild, Harris's hawks hunt in a pack, sort of like a wolf pack. So you might have two to eight hawks that are hunting together, cooperating. And it, so the falcon, in falconry, Harris's hawks are extremely popular because falconers can hunt their birds together. So it makes falconry more social than it usually is. You, a lot of times, if you're flying something like a goshawk, you can't get within a mile of another person because the bird's going to be terrified of a stranger. Harris hawks tend to figure out that the falconer and other people that are with the falconer are helping them and they sort of accept them as an extended part of their cooperative group. So it's a lot of fun. Now what, um, I, you, you said you fly the Harris's hawk. Is that the only, um, uh, bird that you, uh, that you work with? Right now that's what we're flying. But in the past I've flown American kestrels and Merlins and sharp shinned hawks. Uh, my husband has flown quite a number of red tailed hawks, which is a really popular bird here in the South because, uh, it, it can handle the heat pretty well. Harris's hawks handle it better, but, uh, and what, and, um, I guess what, what are you guys, um, because, uh, like you said, this was, uh, we're taking it back to, um, Mongolia and Iran. This was before the invention of the gun. What are these, uh, what are these hawks hunting, um, us, um, more generally? Right. So if it, you're a, if you're hunting with falcons, you're usually hunting birds, and the falcons are usually striking ducks or, or quail or pheasants out of the air, and so it's a much more aerial pursuit, or it might be, you know, larks or starlings if you're hunting merlins, and and in the case of hawks, you're mostly hunting ground quarry. So with our Harris's hawks, for example, we're mostly hunting swamp rabbits around here locally. And then uh, when we travel out west to, say, Texas or New Mexico or maybe even Wyoming or California, we're hunting jackrabbits and desert cottontails. 
Well, we're talking with Dr. Jennifer Colson um, here on MPB Think Radio Creature Conference, uh, Master Falconer, co-author of the Harris's Hawk Revolution Falconery book. And if you want to join today's show, you can give us a call, one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Now, Dr. Colson, I'm not sure if you're aware here in Mississippi, I recently found this out doing a little research that uh, Mississippi, we have a falcon Falconry uh, program with the MDWFP, and it says that the uh, minimum age for an apprentice falconry license is 12. Now, is this activity something uh, you generally see kids getting into? I wish I saw kids getting into it more. <laughs> I guess the problem is that it really, if you're that young, it really involves the sign-on of a parent uh, who's, because, you know, the you have to be able to be mobile. You need somebody to get you to places where you're going to hunt your hawk. You have to build facilities. In fact, let me just go into a little bit of that. Um, if you're interested in falconry, it's a real. It takes a lot of time and effort and money to uh, meet the requirements. Birds of prote- birds of prey are protected by state and federal laws, and it's against the law to harm a bird of prey or keep one as a pet. So you have to apply for a permit. You have to uh, pass a test and a falconry exam you have to build facilities and your facilities and equipment have to pass an inspection by a wildlife officer and if you're um, underage you have to have the approval of your parent or guardian and then when you start out like say you've gotten through all those hurdles you also have to enter into a two-year apprenticeship which really goes back to the history of falconry uh, because apprenticeships were you know medieval let's say but uh then that for those two years you have an experienced falconer who acts as your mentor and really guides you like oh no that's gonna cause your hawk to get injured or that diet isn't good enough or this is what this hawk isn't ready to be flown free yet those are the kinds of things that, and your mentor would help you to p- pick the right species of hawk for the quarry you have in your area what kind of things do you have that you could really hunt with it because it really is a hunting sport it's not about keeping a pet well, we're getting some calls lined up, and uh, we're going to go ahead and take our uh, next break for the hour, but we're going to come back and talk more with Dr. Colson um, about falconry, uh, her work with the Harris's hawk, uh, where do we get these uh, birds from, and um, how her and her husband have been flying uh, these hawks together for quite some time. So stick around. Uh, you can join our conversation one mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or as always, send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll have more creature comforts after the break. Hey, this is Malcolm White. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Every week we talk with visual artists, musicians, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcast app. 
You're listening to MPB Think Radio. It's Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. I'm Java Chapman here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Science, Natural Science. And our guest today is Dr. Jennifer Colson, uh, master falconer, co-author of the book Harris's Hawk Revolution. And as I am finding out, all-around awesome person. Who else can uh, have the hawk go and come back? It's still a magic trick to me. I know it's training, but it's still a magic trick to me. Uh, let's go ahead and um, jump into our phone calls. We have Danny from Newton County who has a uh, falconer falcon falconer question. Uh, good morning, Danny. Good morning. How are you today? Oh, we're doing awesome. What's your uh, question this morning? Well, my question is probably not that unusual, but what I'd like to know is I have rental property. I don't live there, so I don't get to keep up with it every day. But what I found recently was squirrels had gotten in the attic and chewed the protective wrapper off the wiring. may have caused a fire if I had not found it. But they live, the squirrels get in the attic, but they're most of the time very high in the tree. Are falcons able to hunt squirrels? And can they be used to uh, to limit that uh you know, that damage or that uh, squirrel from doing damage to the property? That's a great question, Danny. So I can speak to that. Thanks, Danny, for that question. Yeah, mostly it's not falcons that are used to hunt squirrels because their feet are not powerful enough. Their feet are really adept for smacking and grabbing birds. And it's really the hawks that have sturdier feet because squirrels really have quite a substantial bite, just like they're chewing on the wires. Their jaws are made for cracking nuts. And so it's usually hawks that people use to hunt squirrels with. Uh, Red-tailed hawks would be one of them. And falconry birds and wild hawks alike still have a number of injuries when they hunt squirrels but yeah i think you need some i think you need some red-tailed hawks in your backyard sounds like to me and gray red yeah. snakes probably <laughs> so is that but i mean is it possible to have somebody come out or is it illegal to have somebody come out and kind of thin your squirrel population out because i mean they're they're really thick there's lots of them in the trees there are some programs called abatement. You, you could contact a local falconer, and if it's hunting season, then and they have a hawk that hunts squirrels, sure, that's fine. They might not be able to hunt on the property, depending on, like, it could have dangers for the hawk. For instance, it might have transformers or something nearby that the hawk might get hurt, and they might say, no, I can't really hunt in this situation. It would depend, because safety for the hawk comes first. But... But then there are also, um, and there are some people who have abatement programs where they have trained hawks to do exactly that, go after pigeons in a warehouse or, you know, squirrel property. But there are also, you know, you can, there are licensed animal control agents and can come out with have a hearts and, and they can also set up grading on your building to try to keep the squirrels out. Yeah. Here in Mississippi, you could call the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries and Parks and ask a question about 
falconry. I know that there are falconers around, and they do the program, uh, because just last Thursday after the radio show, I was telling Java, I was over at the Museum of Natural Science, and a falconer was over there, or an apprentice falconer with a red-tailed hawk that he was learning to train, and he was, um, that was part of, of his training, was to do this education program and uh, exposing the hawk you know, to a, to a few people. So he was talking to some kids about that, and I got to watch. But um, there's also somebody called the Critter Catcher, and he can come out, like Jennifer said, and um, catch squirrels for you if you've got too many. So you can call the Department of Wildlife. They can give you his number, or we can. If you if you have trouble finding anything, email us here, and I'll, I'll, I can um, get you in touch with somebody. I will sure do that. Thank you so much. Well, appreciate your call this morning, Danny. Yes, and that uh, email is animals at mpbonline.org. Uh, Libby has a great reach uh, throughout the state. Uh, so does Dr. Troy Major uh, with different resources if you aren't able to just kind of get them on your own. Let's uh, stay on the phones. We have another question um, uh, from Mike and Hernando, uh, who has a hawk question. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, you guys. Um, I'm from the West. I grew up in Utah where we have all kinds of raptors. When I moved here to Mississippi, I saw a small, look like a kestrel. I was told it's the Mississippi kite. I've never heard of it. And I wondered if it's native, and can I can you tell me a little bit more about what that bird is? Jennifer, you want to take that? Sure. Well, you could have seen either. I mean, we have American kestrels here, and then we also have Mississippi kites was it a gray bird or was it kind of orangey and black striped? Uh, it really didn't. I'm sorry. I know a kestrel and it didn't look like one. That's why I asked. And sure. somebody said, oh, that's our native bird, the, the Mississippi kite. Right. Okay. So Mississippi kites, even though they're in the hawk family, they have long pointed wings just like a falcon. So they're often confused with falcons. And they are only here in the spring and summer. And uh, they spend their winter time down in South America. So they are here to nest right now. But they're not really used in falconry because their primary diet is insects. Although they will hunt some lizards and nestling birds and things like that as well. Well, thank you for that question, Mike. Um, we have another caller, uh, Mary from Jackson, who has another um Hawk question. Uh, good morning, Mary. Good morning. Um, I have a question for um, the doctor about red-tailed hawks. Uh, we have a lot of land in southwest Hines County, rural land, and um, I've noticed the red-tailed hawks, it looks like they may be mating in midair. Is that what's going on when two of them will connect up and, like, free fall before they separate? That is a question that raptor biologists love. <laughs> so, they, no, they don't actually mate in, in the air. Um, they copulate on a perch, you know, one of the female perched on a branch and the male um, climbs on top of her. And then um, the falling, that's a, that's a display that's happening when you see the two birds grappling in the air. And it can be that their two birds are fighting uh, where they're and they're grabbing talons and trying to chase the other one away and tumbling down, 
and grabbing each other by the talons is in the feet is the safest way to avoid an injury but it may also be a courtship display in some cases okay it's just really interesting to see them do that and um always wonder what they were doing it's really special to see something like that you don't see that often i don't <laughs> well we we appreciate you um calling in mary uh with that with that observation so basically those those hawks that are far, free falling their relationship goals for um <laughs> for the for the the birds as they are they they're just showing they're just showing off uh correct dr colson <laughs> that's right. Well, I mean, unless it's over territory, then it could be a battle. But right, that's right. <laughs> They're just showing off. Now, I've, we've had several calls come up about hawks, about falcons. I know we're talking about falconry. Um, for me, could you, I guess, break down the difference between hawks and falcons? And are we, when we talk about falconry, you can use a hawk for falconry and it's still called falconry. Can you just kind of break that down a little bit? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. So hawks, falcons, eagles, sometimes even owls are used in the sport of falconry. Really, any bird of prey can be used for falconry. The uh, falcons differ from the hawks. They're actually not closely related. They're an example of convergent evolution. Uh, the, the falcons have a blocky shaped head and they have a shorter hooked beak that's more parrot-like with a notch on the, on the beak that's uh, made for severing the spinal cord of their prey so they can deliver this little fatal blow with a twist of the head and um that sounds you know i I know a little bit gruesome but it's really practical for the falcon to be able to dispatch its prey quickly because it's not as strong with its feet as a hawk uh falcons as i had said before tend to knock things out of the air pursue aerial prey uh you know with the exception of maybe a kestrel that's also hunting bugs but you know kestrels will hunt a lot of sparrows and things too. They're sometimes called the sparrow hawk. And the hawks are mostly pursuing ground quarry. There are exceptions though. For for instance, the occipiters like the Cooper's hawk and the sharp shinned hawk, they pursue a lot of birds. Uh, and so their feet tend to be more falcon-like in a way they have long, thin toes. But hawks tend to have sturdy feet. They tend to have big, wide wings falcons have long pointed wings whereas most of the hawks with the exception of the mississippi kite for example have really rounded wings and they're uh, more adept at soaring so those are some of your primary differences yeah we've talked about um uh, well recently there was a story on uh on the npr talking about hawks that go after other hawks and that was a really really surprising to me and then libby the last couple of shows we've been talking about birds that um uh will push out other birds out of the nest so it's kind of uh it's, <laughs> the bird the bird kingdom gets kind of ruthless well, to that, my swallowtail kite study, one of the main predators that I've found of swallowtail kites is the great horned owl. And we were just in the Diamond Head area uh, last week when we unfortunately found the depredated remains of a, an adult swallowtail kite that was killed on the nest by a great horned owl. And we followed the trail of feathers to the tree where the owl was perched. So, I mean, it was pretty much a smoking gun in that case. It's, wow. it's a it's a birdie bird world out there sometimes. <laughs> yeah, no, that is. It's, yeah, they it, don't even try to hide it. Yeah. Not at all. <laughs> well, let's Just go. Just a meal. 
Yeah. Let's go ahead and take our last break for the hour. If you do um, have a, a question about falconry uh, for Dr. Colson, uh, we do have uh, uh, quite a quite a bit of a time left for you to get your question in. One eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Also, Dr. Troy Major is ready for any pet questions and Libby Hartfield can help you with your recent brushes with nature um we'll be back with more creature comforts after the break hi i'm jason klein from fix it 101 if you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes you can do it if you want to find out how to do those things listen to fix it 101 podcast everywhere You're listening to APB Think Radio. This is Creature Comforts of Java Chapman. Filling in for Kevin Farrell this morning. Um, if you miss any part of today's show, you can always listen back using the MPB public media app or subscribing to the podcast using any podcasting app. Just search Creature Comforts. I'm here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and I guess for the day, Dr. Jennifer Colson, ornithologist, master falconer, co-author of the book Harris's Hawk Revolution. Now, um, Dr. Colson, I know we talked about becoming a falconer, of becoming a falconer. Or am I saying that correctly? Falconer, falconeer. Give me, give me together, please. Yeah, I didn't want to correct you, but falconer is the correct term. Okay, thank you. I, I, I'm not above reproach. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so falconer. Um, but where does one generally uh, get the birds? I saw that you can, um, they can be wild caught. You can get a bird out of the wild. Right. So if you take a bird from the wild, there are pretty strict regulations on that. It has to be a bird that's less than a year old because the the laws are designed to protect the breeding population and, you know, conserve birds of prey. You don't want to take a breeding adult out of the wild. Plus, an adult would be set in its ways and very hard to train. So you, you are allowed to trap, you know, certain species at certain times. And when you... Um, and you can also there uh, you can take a young bird out of a nest, dependent on the species and 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 your level of permitting. Beginners aren't allowed to take a baby out of the nest because a baby is more difficult to raise. And then you can also get a captive bred bird. Um, my husband and I breed Harris ox in captivity for use in falconry. So now, you what also about... have a limit on the number of birds you can take from the wild. So it's pretty well regulated. Oh, and the other point I wanted to make is. When you take a bird from the wild, one of the things that we know from from biological studies is a bird in its first year doesn't have a very good chance of survival, whereas an adult has made it through a lot of trials and tribulations and it has a better chance of persisting in the population. So a lot of those young birds that we take in falconry are birds that would have died had they not been taken in falconry. And some of the birds that are in trouble are actually easier to capture, to trap, because they're hungry, they're starving. So many times falconers catch a bird and end up using it for falconry, and it was a bird that was in bad shape, and they had to nurse it back to health before they started its training. Well, that was going to be uh, sort of my next question about birds, I guess, from rehab or an injured an injured bird and then uh, 
converting it to uh, falconry. Um, I know Libby was just talking about the falcon there. They came to the museum and he was dealing with rehab birds. Um, I'm curious, Dr. Major, I know you are a, a man of man of the world and have uh, done many things. Have any birds of prey ever come, come through the clinic or that's, that's not something that you get into? Well, they have, and usually it's an injury from the standpoint of uh, hit by a car, uh, this sort of thing, and in those cases, I give the give the bird, you know, emergency treatment, but try to find a rehabber, somebody that can take care. And sometimes there's there's not sometimes there's not anything that you can do, uh, so we try to give immediate care and then try to find a professional that is working uh, in the rehab type situation. Dr. Colson, do you do you find many uh, any bir- many birds coming through? I guess uh, uh, the rehab program or process. Oh, certainly. In fact, uh, many of the falconers volunteer for rehab programs, and will will often take on the birds that are a little more difficult to manage in captivity, because the rehab centers have their hands full usually, and so when they've got and the laws will permit this for us to go ahead and. You know, fly. in fact, that's how I actually got started in falconry was taking on rehab birds and training them and getting them fit for release into the wild. So it works pretty well. But yeah, um, hit by car is a really common injury. Uh, we also have babies, hawks and falcons that fall out of their nests. And this is the time of year when that happens or they fledge prematurely. Uh, one of the things I really like to do is, if the bird is healthy, try to get the young bird back into the nest or set up an artificial nest that's really close by just to get it off the ground out of the way of coyotes and cats and such where the parents can still take care of it. Now, we, um, I know we touched on it just a little bit at the beginning because um, we were talking about the, the dukes and the earls and the aristocrats <laughs> being able to uh, uh, have uh, the things available for being a falconer when it comes to the living facility it was one thing in the notes you sent that it was hawks and and falcons have been used for hunting but you can't put it in the closet like a gun after the end of the season so talk about um what i guess the um uh, the habitat that you have to create for the for your bird Sure. Well, it's really a commitment to be a falconer. You have to build facilities for something like a red-tailed hawk. You know, the minimum you'd need is something that's, say, 8 by 10 feet long, but really something like 10 by 15 might be better by 10 feet high. So we're talking about a pretty big chamber. You need a weathering area that's um, fenced in that has a cover on it that would protect the bird from avian predators like owls and eagles. And so you need to, to be able to tether the birds where it can get sunlight, um, it's going to need maybe a 10 by 10 little yard, basically. And you need a place to weigh the bird. You need a special scale that would weigh the bird to within a, uh, a gram. Oh, wow. Um, you know, so it's also really a time commitment. You need to have enough time during daylight hours that you could be able to take your falconing bird out hunting at least three to five days a week. And most people don't have that amount of time. So what I would recommend if somebody's interested in getting started in falconry is to really do your homework first, read some falconry books and look on YouTube, you know, look at the YouTube videos and go hunting with a local falconer before you start thinking about applying for a license. 
And then, you know, if you are interested after that, then as you've said, the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries and Parks website has a falconry information packet and other resources. And there are some local falconry clubs that you could get in touch with as well. Now, as we uh, get ready to close, I have to bring up this uh, social media video that often pops on my timeline. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it's a falconer and he has, I'm not sure what type of bird, but it's extremely large and it appears to take down a deer. Now, what is the, I guess maybe the biggest, uh, the biggest thing that potentially <laughs> this bird, uh, uh, your all bird of prey could, uh, could, could take down? Well, when we were hunting with our Harris hawks, we've occasionally had our hawks grab wild boar by the butt and shoulder and crazy stuff like that. They haven't taken them down, though. I think what you saw, I mean, I've seen, I have friends in the Czech Republic that train golden eagles and they're hunting roe deer. Okay. The roe deer are considerably smaller than the deer we have here. But you know what? Uh, my friend had his two Harris hawks take down a full-grown doe uh she rolled them and injured one i mean he didn't want it to happen it was just you know he was hunting rabbits out in oregon and this deer jumps up and they just grabbed it in response to the movement um didn't hurt the deer at all well i mean i I didn't ask the deer but okay well i have that but the hawks ended up being okay so yes but that that's what you probably saw was um, a roe deer. That's what I was just about to say. It was considerably smaller than I guess what I'm used to. But the bird, and I guess it might have been a bald eagle because it was extremely large. It did grab it and take it down, and I was like, "Wow, this is falconry." <laughs> yeah. Well, Dr. Colson, we appreciate you joining us this morning. I'm sorry we're running out of time, but I know we're going to have you back. We didn't even get to touch on Swallowtail uh, Kite as much as I would have liked to, um, but we appreciate you joining us this morning. And Creature Conference is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting brought to you by listeners such as yourself. I'm Java Chapman for Libby Hartfield, Dr. Troy Major, and our guest, Dr. Jennifer Colson. We will see you next Thursday here on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks.